It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Did you find Romans chapter 3 in your Bible? Can you say amen or something? Like, let me know you got it. All right, good. As we come to the book of Romans chapter 3, um, we have been dealing Really, uh, the book of Romans is broken up into several sections, and the first section, if you will, is found in chapter 1, verse number 18, to chapter 3, verse number 20, and it's a doctrinal section that deals primarily with sin in people's lives. It's, a, it's teaching, it's doctrine that deals primarily with the subject of sin in people's lives. And we finish that, and really, if you were here, uh, this is our 28th message in the book of Romans, and if you were here the last two weeks, um, or really last three weeks, we had a break because of our men's retreat, but uh, the last two subjects or studies in Romans, um, you have been through maybe two of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible uh, to really understand passages that cause people some some pretty in-depth confusion. So good for you for being uh, here through that. But what you have learned is, is that we are sinners in desperate need of salvation and without hope. And that's really what you've learned. And really that's what we've learned for the whole 27 previous messages is that we are sinners in need of help. Well, as we come to our passage today in verse number 21 of chapter 3, we uh, have to ask this question, and it's a question that's on the screen, and it's a question that is being answered in this passage of Scripture. How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? This is a long-standing question people have asked for the ages, if you will. You go all the way back to the book of Job, chapter 9, verse number 2. Uh, Job was talking to his friends, and he answered his friend Bildad in Job 9, 2. And he said, but how shall a man be just with God? Bildad repeats that statement back to Job in Job 25, verse number 4. How then can a man be justified with God? John the Baptist is preaching in the book of Luke chapter 3 and he's preaching his message of repentance and faith in Christ alone and the coming Christ alone and the people to whom John is preaching say in, John, in Luke chapter 3 verse number 10, what shall we do then? John, now that you've preached this message, how can we be right with God? In Matthew chapter 19, verse number 16, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, he says, what, uh, good master, what good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's asking the same question. How can I be right with God? And in Acts chapter 22, verse number 10, the apostle Paul, who's on the road to Damascus, is in, and is, he's headed to Damascus to persecute Christians. He is confronted with Jesus Christ on the road and he asked this question after Jesus blinds him, what shall I do, Lord? And the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse number 30 says this, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Mankind throughout history has wanted to answer this most basic question. How can I be right with God? 
The very reason that religion is so universally common to mankind reflects man's attempt to answer such a question. How can I be right with God? One commentator, John MacArthur, said people cannot escape feelings of guilt. Some of you have come today and you're guilty. You feel guilt this morning. People cannot escape feelings of guilt, not only for doing things they know are wrong, but for being the way they are. Man's sense of lostness, loneliness, emptiness, and meaninglessness is reflected in the literature and archaeological remains of every civilization. So is his fear of death, of existence, if any, beyond the grave and of divine punishment. Nearly every religion is a response to those fears and seeks to offer a way of reaching and satisfying deity. But every religion except Christianity is man-made and works-centered. And for that reason, none of them can succeed in leading a person to God. You've come today because you want to know, how can I be right with God? Even the atheist is trying to answer that question. Now, they do so from a dismissive perspective of dismissing the concept of a God. And really, in order to dismiss the concept of a God, which is written on their hearts, they have to then make themselves a God and a bigger God than any God they could ever imagine. So they don't really dismiss the concept of a God. They just change the authority or the object and make themselves God. The Bible is very clear that the way to God... There is a way to God, and we can make no mistake about that. But man cannot come to God in his own terms or under his own power. You do not, and I do not have the capacity to come to God on our own. We just don't have that ability. As far as salvation is concerned, there are only two world religions, two of them. There's two religions in the world. You say, no, I know I passed a lot of churches on the way here. Well, in regards to salvation, there are two world religions. One religion is the religion of divine accomplishment, what Christ accomplished. He is the divine son of God. And what he accomplished on the cross when he died for the sin of mankind, that's what we call biblical Christianity, the Christianity of divine accomplishment. That's religion number one one in the world. The other religion in the world is the religion of human achievement. That includes all other religions. And here's all other religions in a nutshell. I'll prove to you how good I am or how kind I am or how much I have to offer. I'll work really, really hard to make God happy with me. Whatever means that or name that religion goes under, that's the religion of human achievement. I'll go to confession. I'll be a missionary for two years after college. I'll worship at this tree. I'll save the planet. I'll do whatever it is, but I'll do something that appeases creator God. The religion of divine or human accomplishment. You have divine accomplishment, biblical Christianity, and everything else is based on human efforts. If you'll remember, there are two groups of people that Paul is referring to in the church. There's the Jews 
Those people who grew up following the Judeo, Judeo ethic of the Old Testament, they were obedient to the law. They proved through human effort that they were followers of God. And Paul has spent an aggregate amount of time in our study in the book of Romans, primarily all of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, telling them that they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And then there are Gentiles who came up with, they didn't know about God. They came up with a perverse form of righteousness apart from God. And, and they too demanded that God accept their human achievement. The scripture is clear. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to God. And we see in verse number 21 and 22 that God has revealed his righteousness. God has revealed his righteousness, but now, the scripture says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, this word now is of the utmost importance in this passage of scripture. Matter of fact, some people would say, well, it's just a word. It just means a period of time or a spot in the road. No, no, this is a, a breaking point in the message of Romans. This is a, a watershed word for our study in the book of Romans. And really, in all of biblical theology, this word means so much within the context that we're talking about because this word points to a pivotal point in human history because it's really saying the, these two things. But now, you, you have to remember that the apostle has been dealing with the sin of man and the inability of man to be right with God and the ability, inability of man to have a relationship with God and man's desperate condition of, of depravity and need of salvation. That's what he's been dealing with really all the way from chapter 1, verse number 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse number 20. He's made this huge case and you have to remember that he's an attorney and put your mind in a courtroom and think for a minute that the apostle Paul has laid out this very, very strong case against mankind, all of us included, and we're, we're desperate, we're lost, we're undone, we're without hope. And that's really what he's been saying this whole passage from 1, 18 all the way to 3, verse number 20. And then he uses this word, but now. Well, what does it mean if it's so powerful? Well, it means that before now or back then, hundreds and even thousands of years ago, God had patience in that he put up with man's attempt at self-righteousness through the law. But now the period of God's righteousness has come, the righteousness that is found in God's very own son, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying it like this, times have changed. Now things are different. They used to be like that, but now they're like this. And then he's saying this as well. Back then, man sinned and sinned and learned the impossibility of putting away his own sin. Man's period of time under the law showed him the impossibility of ever being right with God apart from God's grace. But now the righteousness of God is found in God's very own son, Jesus Christ. Now, now what? Now the righteousness of God is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
Well, the word righteousness here demands a little bit of work. There's some big theological words that we're going to study here. And the word righteousness in both the Old and the New Testament is a, the state commanded by God and the standing the test of his judgment. This word righteousness is conformity to all that God commands or appoints. And since God himself is the standard for every believer, the righteousness of God means the righteousness which belongs to God or to oneself from God. Thus, righteousness in general is God's uprightness or standard. And in the context of this passage, it is the recognition and acceptance of God's claim upon man. It is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing to do with conformity to the law, salvation being the right standard with God. That's what the word righteousness means. You say, Man, that means a lot. Yeah, it does. It's a hugely important word. But now the righteousness of God without the law. Conformity to all that God commands or appoints. And God is, listen to me, God is the standard. Here's what I've heard people in this room say. Here's what I hear people say all the time. And here's what I used to say myself. But I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I don't break any big laws, I mean speeding and, you know, stop signs and stuff, but I mean, it's not like I, and you could fill in the blank, but God's standard of righteousness, because notice what the passage says, but now the righteousness of God Not the righteousness of man. Make no mistake, we talked about it last week. There are things that people do that are good. Humanly speaking, people, you know, they they build hospitals, they adopt children, people are kind and gracious, they, they, uh, you know, give the right of way. I was just in Atlanta, worst traffic in all of America is Atlanta, Georgia. I've never missed LA so much as when I was driving through Atlanta. I've never missed LA till I was driving through Atlanta. I mean, it was just horrible. I was talking to somebody there and they're like, yeah, Atlanta's terrible, Pastor, and the worst thing about it is they don't know how to let people merge onto the freeway. I'm like, boy, you've got that right. I mean, it was just, it was an accident waiting to happen. I took my life into my own hands. I was glad I was saved. I was glad my insurance was paid up and I was glad Debbie was with me. She said goodbye to me on the freeway several times. Like, I think this is it. We're about to go home to be with the Lord. And, uh, it was, it was crazy, but, but, oh, I just break this little law or this little law or this one. No, no. The righteousness that God demands is 100% perfection, not according to man's standard, but according to God's standard. Well, what is God's standard? Listen to me. Himself. What do you mean? I mean himself. God's standard is himself. He is the standard of perfection that he requires. You say, well, nobody could ever meet that standard. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's what God's revealed. God has revealed his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Notice this phrase, without the law or apart from adherence to any legal or moral standard. The Torah, the Mosaic law, the righteousness of God is revealed without the law. To the Jews sitting in the crowd, this is earth shattering. Are you kidding me? God's standard could ever be accomplished without doing good? 
That's like, that's like saying to a Catholic, you can be good and I'll go to confession. Like, what do you mean? How could that ever be? I'm not trying to be offensive to, to Catholics. I'm just simply saying that would be, that would be as, as far-fetched to Jews and probably 10 times more, that concept. The righteousness of God can be evidenced or manifested or made apparent or clearly shown without the law? Are you kidding me, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, there's two things that he's talking about. Number one, the law doesn't allow for disobedience. It requires obedience. Anyone who disobeys the law becomes a lawbreaker, a transgressor, and he is guilty and he has to be condemned. So there's no righteousness in the law. The whole point of the law is to prove to you you can't keep it. And the law doesn't have the power to make you obedient. It doesn't have the power to say, come on now, obey, obey, obey. Don't covet, don't covet, don't covet. You know, the whole point of the law, Paul says later in chapter 7, I had not known covetousness except the law said, thou shalt not covet. It only reveals a person's inability to secure any righteousness by self-effort. You'll never be righteous by trying to be righteous. Oh, I'm a pretty good person. I keep the law. Everything is good. Paul says, no, the whole righteousness that we see of God is seen without the law. Without it. It's made evidenced, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Well, Paul, who gives, which gives you the authority to tell us that the law of God is manifested apart from, or the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law of God? Well, the law and the prophets. What's the law? The legal standard, the 613 commandments, the first 10, the Decalogue, as theologians would call it. Those 10 commandments that we all know that encapsulates everything, but the totality of the 613 commandments that God requires. So if you say, I'm going to be a pretty good person, you have to understand that the law, and then he says the prophets, which are the the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul is saying this, the whole point of the Old Testament in scripture is to prove to you and I that we can never be righteous in God's eyes on our own. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the law. I can never be righteous apart from Christ. God has revealed his righteousness when it's not the law. Secondly, we see in this text in verse 22 and verse number 23, God wants everyone to be right with him. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested or made apparent, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 21, verse 21, 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to be right with him. Now, righteousness is given to the believer. The righteousness which belongs to God or to oneself from God. That's what it means. Salvation, eternal life. The righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus. Strong confidence in, persuasion, firm persuasion, conviction in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. How do I be righteous in God's eyes? By understanding that you're a sinner and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Why? Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him or through him. 
Colossians 3, 3, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 10, and having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now look at verse number 22. It's an important phrase here. Upon all them, or unto all them that believe. What does he mean by unto? It means it happens to you. And then he uses a more powerful phrase after that, unto all. And he says, upon all them that believe. Upon all that that believe, everyone who is righteous in God's eyes, everyone who is saved, everyone who has eternal life comes to God the exact same way by faith in Jesus Christ. And he comes upon him, this righteousness comes upon all them that believe. And that phrase upon all literally means to lay a covering on or a blanket on or clothing on them. The righteousness of God comes on them like a blanket or like clothing or like a covering. In other words, the righteousness of God, I I had a jacket here in the earlier service, I should have brought it back. The righteousness of God covers them and what is under the covering cannot be seen and will not be seen because of the covering of God's righteousness that is placed over that individual. It's never to be seen. Well, pastor, don't you understand how dark my past is? Well, not unless you tell me. And I don't really want you to tell me. I mean, if you need to talk about it, sure, let's do that. But you don't need to confess anything to me. Well, pastor, I don't think I could ever be forgiven. Well, okay, but what does the scripture teach us about this? Now notice the text. The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, salvation unto all and upon all them that believe. Your faith in Jesus Christ covers you. But you don't know the power of my past. Oh, I may or I may not know the, 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 the difficulty and the power of sin in your past. But I can tell you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you ought to listen clearly here. That you are covered by the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus alone. You are covered. And when you are covered, it can't be seen. When you are covered, you don't know what's under it. When you're covered, nobody understands what's there. And well, what am I covered by? Well, come on. Verse number 22, even the righteousness of God. What are you saying? That when God looks at you, and he's going to reiterate this in just a second. When God looks at you, he looks at you through the covering of Christ's righteousness. That's how he looks at you. Well, why is this necessary? Because of verse number 23. All have sinned. Every man has sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you're here this morning, yes, you have sinned. And if people aren't here this morning, yes, they have sinned. You say, well, that's everybody that's ever been. Yes, right. If you're here or not here, you are a sinner. The only person who has not sinned that ever walked on the face of this earth is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the divine Son of God, the second person in the Trinity. Other than him, every other person on the planet for all time is a sinner. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark of God's perfection. We've all missed the mark of God's glory. Every single one of us. That's why Proverbs says, who can say I made my heart clean? 
I am pure from my sin. It's a rhetorical question in Proverbs 20, verse number 9, where he is literally saying this, no one can make their own heart clean. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse number 6, it says, and we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Because we are sinners... There is nothing of value that we bring to the table, which leads us to verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Number three, being right with God is only possible through justification. Being right with God is only possible through justification. Justification means basically to be or to become judicially vindicated as having complied with the requirements of the law of God. I am justified. In the New Testament, you got to hear this, in the New Testament or in the day and age in which we live, justified never means to make anyone righteous or to do away with his violation by himself bearing the sentence or the judgment. You never become justified because you have done something to justify yourself. Man in his fallen condition can never do anything to justify himself. You listen very clearly. We're all in the same boat. We can never do anything to pay for our own sinfulness. In pride, folks will sometimes say, I don't want Jesus to pay for my sin. I'll pay for it myself. Which is foolish on its face, on its face value. But I don't want anybody. I'm not going to be a debtor to Jesus. I'll pay the price for my own sin. There is no way possible for you to pay the price for your own sin. None. You say, no, no. I'll even go to hell for eternity to pay the price for my own sin. That's a choice to some degree you can make. But let me tell you, you could be in hell for a billion years. Suffer the consequences of hell. The eternal fire, the eternal flame, where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched, where, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll never forget this message in hell. My face will always be in front of you if you're in hell, which you get the idea of how devastating that will be. You, you could do all of that, be in hell for any length of time, and you're never in one way or another, not at all, any closer to being forgiven or justified. Why? Because there is no way for you to pay for your own sin debt, no way at all. No way at all. You can't pay for it. I can't pay for it. And really, that's what Paul has been dealing with, with the Jews who thought they were really good. So they thought that because they were really good and they grew up in the South and they went to church their whole life, or they grew up in the North and they went to church their whole life, or their dad was a pastor, or their mom took them to church, or they voted for a particular political party, or they helped with the cleanups on the beach every other week, that they were really good. And Paul is saying this, no, 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 you cannot justify yourself in any way, shape, or form. Justification means you've complied with the requirements of God. Well, then how are we made right with God? We are justified. Notice verse 24. We are justified freely. Freely means as a gift or undeservedly or as a cost. We are justified freely 
by his grace. Now, now grace means a lot of different things, not a lot, about three or four different things throughout the scripture. But here, grace in this context means the absolute free expression of God's kindness to mankind. God's grace affects man's sinfulness and not only forgives the repentant sinner, but brings joy and thankfulness to him. It changes the individual into a new creation without destroying his individuality. It is all a work of God's grace. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are justified without cost to ourselves. We our sin is covered without cost to ourselves by the abundant grace of God, the free expression of his loving kindness. Keep looking at the verse through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, redemption is another big Bible word. What does it mean? I mean, we sing I stand songs like I stand redeemed and redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We sing that, but what does it really mean? The word redemption means deliverance from the penalty of sin on account of the ransom paid as spoken of, the deliverance from the power and the consequence of sin which Christ procured by laying down his life as a ransom. Let me translate the definition. You know, I love those words where the definition confuses you more than the word. Here's what the word means. It means I'm delivered from sin because Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for me in my place. I'm redeemed. I'm delivered from the power of sin. I'm delivered from the consequence of sin, which Christ procured or gave me when he laid down his life for mankind. I don't have to live in sin anymore. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. I, I'm, I'm addicted to porn. No, bro, if you're saved, you're freed from that. It no longer controls you anymore. Oh, Pastor, you don't understand why I'm bitter. If you knew my parents, you would understand why I've got bitterness in my heart. Uh, if you're saved, you've been freed from that. No, did you hear me? You've been freed from that. Well, I was, I was abused as a child, and I'm not trying to be funny here. I was abused as a child, and that's why I'm angry today. You're freed from that. You, no, you're freed from that. Well, how could I ever be freed from that? Well, come on, because you're justified freely by his grace. Well, How? By the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is a constant theme of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 7. A redundant theme of Scripture. Where Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1, 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. In Colossians 1, 14, he says essentially the same thing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. The redemption, the deliverance from the penalty of sin was paid for by Christ's death on the cross. You are freed from the penalty of 
and the power of sin if you're saved. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, understand this, that if you'll accept him as your Savior, the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Christ, verse 21, 22, the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, not only frees you from the eternal consequence of sin, but it frees you from the present day power of sin. So you don't have to get lit up on Friday night. You don't have to be angry at what mom said to you 15 years ago. If you're saved. You don't have to be angry because that person in church looked at you the wrong way. I'm just giving you time to think. I want to see your reaction, so I put my glasses back on. <laughs> I wish I could see people online right now. You don't have to be angry at a, another soul, ever. You've been freed from that. You don't have to live in anger on that man that walked out on you and your children. You've been freed from that. You don't have to be ticked off for the rest of your life at the fact that, the, that your dad walked out on you or that your mother was abusive. You've been freed from that. Some of y'all, listen to me, some of y'all, you live your whole life. I say y'all because I was in Georgia this week. Some of you guys live your whole life trying to make up for what happened 20 years ago and you just totally are blind to the fact that you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, I am the way I am because of what happened to me. Well, why do you look at the lowest denominator of what happened to you? And I understand, I'm not minimizing it at all. Why don't you look at the highest denominator of the fact that you are justified before God if you are saved and the very God of the universe sent his son to, son to die for you? Why is that not the central thought of your life? That's why we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or quoted it briefly. If any man be in Christ, uh, uh, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. What's become new? My position in Christ, my walk with God, my relationship with him. I am justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you look over in Romans 5, verse number 1, the apostle Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God? Because we're justified by faith. Faith of who? The, the, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Being right with God is only possible through justification. See, here's the deal. If you try to accept Jesus Christ, or, you, or let me rephrase this. If you try to be right with God apart from Jesus Christ, you will fail every single time. There is no other way under heaven given among men, the Bible said, whereby you must be saved. There is no way on this planet you could ever have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. 
Well, I'll be a good dad. Awesome. Good. Do that. But it won't make you right with God. I'll be a great employee. Great. Do that. But that won't make you right with God. I'll pay my taxes and stop claiming the goldfish in the family as a deduction. Great. Do that. But that won't make you right with God. I'll obey all traffic laws. Now you're just lying. But even if you did that, it still won't make you right with God. There is no way to be right with God apart from the, the, the faith, firm conviction in Christ and repentance of sin, which says, I know I've sinned against you and I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. There is no other means that you could ever be saved apart from faith in Christ. No other means. And then we see finally in verse number 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Fifthly this morning, or fourthly this morning, righteousness is by an act of God's atoning grace alone. Whom God hath set forth. The phrase hath set forth means this, publicly displayed. Whom God publicly displayed. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Now the word propitiation would bring back a lot of imagery to the Jews. To the Christian we would probably think of 1 John 2 verse number 2 that says... Um, and if you sin, uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous is verse 1, and he is the propitiation for our sin. And we would often define that word as the substitutionary payment for our sin. And, and, and in a general sense, that would be accurate. But in reality, that word is much deeper. And, and to be honest with you, this is why I love studying the scripture and preaching it the way that we do. It's because I learned something new about this word as I really delved into the studying it this week. The propitiation is technically what is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, I have a picture for you, is a lid of pure gold that covers the Ark of the Covenant. Well, if you're new to church and you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, the Ark of the Covenant is a piece of, for lack of a better term, of furniture that God told Moses to build back in the book of Exodus. And Moses had this built and and commissioned this building. And inside is the Ten Commandments and the rod, Aaron's rod that turned into a snake and budded and all of these things, a a beautiful thing. And, and, And then there's other things that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the dwelling place of God. It's a holy, it is in Judaism, it is the most sacred place in all of the country. It is, it is this Ark of the Covenant that in the temple sat inside what is called the most holy place. And no one in the country or the world was allowed inside the most holy place, the holiest of holies often called apart from the high priest who could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice a a heifer, a female cow. They would sacrifice, they would take her blood, they would put it in a cup, and they would go into the holiest place, the most holy place, and the high priest would would take... uh, 
something like feathers that were bound together. And it was such a holy place that he had to have a rope tied around his ankle because if he went in and sinned or wasn't clean before God, the high priest, he would fall dead at the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would take those feathers, he would dip them in the blood, and he would sprinkle them on the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the propitiation or the mercy seat is that pure gold lid that you see there that covers the Ark of the Covenant. It is where the high priest was to sprinkle the blood. It is the place that the blood would land on the Day of Atonement where the Lord promised to meet his people. So when that blood was sprinkled there, it wasn't supposed to hit around the Ark of the Covenant. The blood was supposed to land on the mercy seat or on the propitiation, the place of the payment Paul, by applying this name to Christ, assures us that Jesus Christ is the true, leave that up, please, is the true mercy seat. The reality that, that, that is made clear here is that Christ covers the holy ark of the covenant. And Christ is designed to be the sacrifice he died for the sin of the whole world, but he is also the place of the atonement. Jesus is, here's how we would say this, is not only the place where the sinner deposits his sin, but he is the means of atonement. Christ is not like the high priest in the Old Testament who atones or expiates the sin of the people and that was, a, that was accomplished through the blood of a, of a heifer every year. No, Christ made this offering one time for the sin of mankind. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Pastor, what is all of this saying? This is what it's saying. It's saying that Christ is the mercy seat for all mankind. Christ is the place where your sin debt is paid and the means through which your sin debt is paid. In other words, Paul has, been, Paul has spent, if you will, a tremendous amount of time telling you and I and, and helping us to understand through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that we are sinners, that we are in desperate need of God's grace. And now he begins to explain to us how we can enjoy that grace or take that grace on. Well, how do we do it? By accepting Jesus Christ alone as our personal Savior. In other words, there is no other mercy seat. There is no other propitiation. 
There is no other means of salvation. You can't be right with God by doing good things, by being a good parent, by being a good employee, by paying your taxes on time and even early. No, no, we're only made right with God by accepting the free gift of Christ's sacrifice and putting all of our faith and trust in him alone. In other words, there's not a multiple group of people that we need to talk to for salvation. No, salvation comes through Christ alone. Christ alone. He's the propitiation. He paid for your sin debt. It wasn't, listen to me, it wasn't Jesus and your parents. I come from a godly family. I give my parents a hard time because it's fun. But I come from a godly family. My dad loves Jesus with all his heart. My mom loves Jesus with all her heart. I'm thankful for the godly heritage that I have. But my parents are not in a better condition than I am. I'm not in a better condition because I have godly parents than somebody who was born in a family without godly parents. No, no, we're all in the exact same boat, and that's what Paul is dealing with here. And we all have to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and Christ alone to save us, to save you. In order for you to be saved, you have to come to Christ. And there's nothing that you did to get it. And there's nothing you can do to keep salvation. It is entirely a work of Christ. Your salvation is kept by Christ. Your salvation is given by Christ. And salvation is offered by Christ. And God wants everyone to be right with him. Verse 24. And you're justified freely by his grace. It didn't cost you anything. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are redeemed. Your sin debt has been paid. You're delivered from the penalty of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the word propitiation literally means, we're coming back here, to be a covering. Bring that picture back up. That's what the propitiation is. It's a covering. It's the cap on the ark. It's the mercy seat. You're covered. Can I tell you this? That if you've been covered by the blood of the lamb, I I speak to the believer here this morning. If you're covered by the blood of the lamb, your sins are covered. Your sin debt's been paid. You're no longer under the bondage of your sin. You don't have to keep living in your insecurities. I just have to say the word insecurities and you feel like people are going, oh no, I wonder if he knows about mine. I do. God told me this morning. Here's the reality. We all are often so insecure because we fail to understand who it is that has forgiven us and who it is that paid for our forgiveness. You ever been around a yoked up dude and just feel bigger and better and badder? You're a lot more secure. Okay, let me illustrate this way, all right? Work with me here. Debbie and I, 
we flew to Atlanta on Monday night to be a part of uh, young missionary Chesley Howe's ordination. He'll be here in December. He's a member of our, of our church for, I don't know, 10, 11 years, something like that. He's going to Columbia. We get in there Monday through a weird series of events. Namely, it's called Atlanta. We landed at 8.30 and we got to our hotel at midnight. It was a blessing. And so we dropped our luggage off in the hotel after checking in, and we were starving because we had eaten at, um, well, Einstein Bagel at the airport at 1 o'clock before we left San Diego. So we were quite hungry, and, and I was, I mean, I'm, I'm down in everything I can find, M&Ms, gummy bears. There was an old lady on the plane next to me. I fought her for her salad. She won. Uh, I mean, we're starving. And so we, we get to Atlanta, we get to our motel, and let's go find something to eat. And, and uh, Debbie's with me. We don't know this area at all. It's not a bad, it's a beautiful area, a beautiful area, no doubt about it, a beautiful area. And the only thing we could find is a hamburger place and Waffle House. And so I said, let's go to Waffle House. And we drive up, and I look at Waffle House. Some I mean, of you are all excited about it. <laughs> Nothing says good food like Waffle House. Um, and we go to Waffle House, and I pull up into Waffle House, and there's a bunch of people in there, all of them my size or bigger, and it just look. I mean, it's Waffle House at almost 1 o'clock in the morning, and it's me and Debbie. And I'm thinking, if something goes down, and this is the way my mind works, if something goes down in there, I'll take care of myself, but Debbie will get involved, and she'll get knocked out. And, I'll have, she'll, and she'll just get involved going, oh, let's be friends. I mean, Debbie's life song is, why can't we be friends? Why can't we be friends? I mean, that's just her life song. And so, like, I'm like, Ugh. and so we literally, we pull in the parking lot. I survey the crowd because, you know, they have all the windows open so that, you know, the assassins know where to shoot. And, and I look at it, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't feel comfortable going in here. She's like, why not? And these were my exact words to her, because you're with me. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, if anything bad goes down, you're going to be not an asset. You're a liability. So we went and got bad hamburgers and ate them and had a bad attitude the rest of the night about it. Now, fast forward. I didn't really have a bad attitude, but it was not near as good as really bad waffles with really bad syrup. Bad for you, I mean, not bad in flavor. Well, fast forward now to Thursday night, the night of Chesley's ordination. After the service was done, beautiful service, wonderful time together, I said, hey, let's go eat. And it's Atlanta, so everything shuts down about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it seems like, really 9 o'clock at night. And I said, let's find something. Well, it's about 9 o'clock, and we couldn't find anything open. There was a Cracker Barrel closed at 9. There was everything else closed at 9. I'm like, man. So we went to this one motel, and they didn't have really any food. They had snacks. And I'm like, well, let's not do that. And our hotel wasn't, didn't have a restaurant, so we didn't eat there. And I looked, and I thought, oh, Waffle House. And I said, let's go to Waffle House. And Debbie goes, why are we going to Waffle House now? Ask her, this is not a lie, not an exaggeration. God is my witness. I said, because Chesley's with us. <laughs> she said, do you trust Chesley more than me? And those are her exact words. She has a bad attitude about it. I looked right at her and I said, absolutely. She said, Why? Well, if something goes down, Chesley and I will fight and we'll just kick you out and everything will be okay. You say, what kind of Waffle House are you, are you going to? I don't know, but it just seems that way. When you go to Waffle House, you're in fear of your life. And, 
I mean, literally, I felt like I was taking my life in my own hands. But Chesley and I went. We're both watching the door the whole time. And let me tell you, some shady characters came in there more than a few times. And Debbie's like, why can't we be friends? I'm grabbing her, pulling her back into the table. But I had much greater security because of who I was with in the Waffle House. Now, you can call me stupid. That's fine. My family does. I don't have a problem with that. But the level of security increased when the person I was walking with changed. Let me say it again. The level of security increased when the person I was walking with changed. You know why you're insecure? You know why you're always doubting? You know why you're always always scared? Because you're not walking with Jesus who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and spoke this world into existence and he's the mercy seat and he loves you and he loves me and if you'll put your faith and trust in him, he'll take your insecurities, he'll take your fears, he'll take your doubts and he'll put them under his blood not to be seen anymore and believer, the reason you keep having them is because you keep reaching under the covering and bringing it to the top of the table. Stop reaching under the covering. He's given victory by his blood you are redeemed, it is covered, you have hope, you have health, you have, and I don't mean physical health, but spiritual health in Christ and Christ alone. And you're covered. Walk with Jesus. Live for Christ. Get saved. Repent and trust Jesus. Oh, I'd like to have that kind of confidence, but I just don't think anybody could forgive me. The man who wrote this letter persecuted people for nothing other than their faith in Jesus Christ. But what do you mean persecuted him? He yelled at him? He protested him? No. He had him arrested and thrown in jail? He beat them within an inch of their life? He threw them in prison? He separated families. He did all of that and worse. He had people killed, torturous deaths because of their faith in Christ. And yet he got victory because he put his faith and trust in Christ alone. Have you? The reason some of you are frustrated right now, you came to church right now and you're really irritated. Not at me, you're just irritated at life, I get it. But the reason some of you are really frustrated right now is you keep trying to win battles that Jesus Christ has already won. And the only one who can win them is Jesus Christ. And you keep trying to fight a battle that's already been won. And that's really kind of silly, isn't it? On Wednesday, Debbie and I went to Kenneshaw Mountain right outside of Marietta, Georgia. And it was there that the Confederates from the state of Tennessee got into a major battle with the Federalists or the Union troops. If you go to that mountain today, you would still see the 
ditches that were dug by the Confederacy, 11 miles worth of ditches. The federal troops were from Illinois. There's a big giant monument called the Monument to Illinois Monument that's there. 11 miles of ditches still there in that forested, wooded area. Took about a three and a half, four mile hike and went up there and saw that. If I got up there and you got up there and everybody started looking for me and come to find out they send out search parties and I'm just sitting in one of those ditches. You come up, Pastor, what are you doing? Oh, I'm waiting for those troops to come. I'm going to take them out. I got my musket. I got my bayonet. I got my cantina water and pinto beans. I'm, I'm here for the long haul. You would look at me as though I was ridiculous and rightly call for some help and say he's fighting a battle that has already been won. And you go, that's ridiculous. Why are you doing that? Well, because I think slavery needs to be ended. I, need, I believe this, I believe that. And I'm just going to stay here just in case. It's already been decided 150 years ago. That's what some of you are doing today. You're fighting battles that have already been decided 2,000 years ago. The victory has already been secured. The offer has been made. Redemption and justification are sure things. Will you put your faith and trust in Christ? Well, I've got more answers or more questions. You know, really, faith is just saying, I'm firmly persuaded. I have all that I need to understand. I'm going to trust Christ, and I'm jumping in both feet. That's what faith is. Christian, you say, yeah, for salvation, I can do that. Then why can't you do that with your daily life? Why won't you do that with your daily life? How can I be right with God? Well, God's revealed his righteousness. He wants you to be right with him. It's only possible through justification, and it's an act of his atoning grace alone. You'll never be right with God on your own, only through Christ. He is the mercy seat for all mankind. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.